usually on a Palm Sunday message, you start in Jerusalem because that's where it happened when Jesus rode into town. We're going to look at that, but we're going to back up because just prior to Jesus going up to Jerusalem, which was up in the mountains, he was down on the, the Jordan Rift in a little town called Jericho. And in the gospel, according to Luke, chapter 19, uh, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes uh, my, my studies evolve. I, I was initially going to go start in verse 29, and then I made it verse 28, and then I made it verse 12, and then I made it verse 11. <laughs> and so... Uh, it literally going back and changing my stuff as I went. But it's just because, as you guys know, context is so, 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 so important. It's very important that we understand what's happening in the background, what's happening that leads up to these events. And I just got into this deal in, in Luke chapter 19 because Jesus essentially gives a parable that illustrates exactly what he's doing and when he's going to do it. And the people, by the end of the week, totally blow it off. But it's interesting, the things that he lays out here and that Luke lays out for us. Uh, we're gonna, So we're going to start in Jericho. We're not going to start in Jerusalem. Then we're going to go up to Jerusalem. And uh, the background here is that Jesus' ministry had been going for over three years at this point. And as he had been going along, teaching, healing, uh, illustrating the kingdom of God to the people in Israel over that time, there had been a shift in his ministry. Uh, he, he, so he's headed for Jerusalem as he's in Jericho here. And it would be the last time that he would, in his earthly ministry, head for Jerusalem. He's gone for the national feasts before and this is Passover. This is the last Passover. He knows he's the Passover lamb. He knows that he is the sacrifice. Uh, and, and so he's trying to illustrate these things to the people here. Uh, and, and he had let people know way ahead of time, months before, in, in Luke 9.51, uh, you don't need to turn there. It says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was months before the events we're looking at here this morning. Uh, his journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, is what's being referred to there. The same thing in Matthew 16. After Jesus is identified by Peter as you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus warns him, he says, don't tell anybody about this because he had not yet come to the place where he was going to be unveiled. Uh, and it says in Matthew 16 that from that point forward, he began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the, at the hands of the religious leaders and be crucified and be raised on the third day. He has been out in the open with his guys but here, as we look at these events, he's about to be out in the open with the nation. And so his journey comes to an end in this, as I said, looking at Luke 9.51, where he says that. It goes all the way to, to chapter 19, verse 27. 
all of the things that happened in that span of time. And he did a lot of miracles, did a lot of teaching, did a lot of the ministry that he did. He was headed for Jerusalem. That was the underlying current in his life, in his ministry. As he went, the crowds were growing. As he traveled, people were attracted to this itinerant rabbi from Galilee. The amazing things that he did, the, the, the miracles that he would bend the laws of physics, the, the, the laws of nature, and, and that he would accommodate people in their disease and their distress, and that he would do things. And we're told in the book of Acts that the purpose in those things was to demonstrate who he is, who he was. It was to demonstrate that he had the ability to forgive sin. So as he's going along, the crowds have been growing. Here in Jericho, he's got a sizable group. As he ascends up into Jerusalem, well, first he goes to Bethany. That group follows him. And then as he goes from there into Jerusalem, the, the group, another group comes out of the city and there's this big, huge hoopla that takes place. We'll get to that if I stop introducing this. Um, but the point is, is that he's got a lot of people following him. Remember in the Gospel of John, he thinned the ranks on purpose at one point. After he had fed the 5,000, he went over to Capernaum overnight, walked on the water and all that, and the guys were straining against the oars. I love that story. Uh, and he gets to Capernaum the next day, and the, the crowd actually followed him. He sent them home. They followed him around the lake. And, and, and they got there, and he said, you seek me because I fed you. Not because that was supposed to illustrate that I can do more. <laughs> they wanted to take him and make him king right then. And he said, no, that's not what I'm here for. We're going to look at that. And, and he actually told them at that point, look, if you want anything to do with me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. For a Jew, <laughs> not a really polite thing to say. I mean, for a Jew, that would be absolutely stumbling. It had nothing to do with blood and nothing to do with death with dead flesh. And yet he knew that he had to get these people's attention. And he had. And the crowds had come back and they were grasping to understand. And yet they couldn't fully understand until we're told, till after he had been glorified, till after the Holy Spirit came and gave men and women illumination as to what these things were. So he's moving towards Jerusalem. His name had become known. It, not just to the common people, but he'd become known to the religious leaders as well. They had an established power base in Jerusalem, and he threatened it. And they didn't like him. He was upsetting their stuff. <laughs> and I, I love the fact that if you look in the New Testament, you see that the people who Jesus poked in the chest were the religious guys. They were the ones that were arrogant and pompous, puffed up in their own stuff, thinking that they were the ones to represent God to the people and the people to God. And they had totally, they were so far off. So we're going to begin with chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, Jesus, again, he's been in Jericho. He'd healed a blind man. And then we see the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Great story. We're not going to cover that. This is all in the beginning of, of chapter 19, uh, where he ends the, the thing with Zacchaeus receiving salvation and, and, and Jesus is saying, today salvation has come to this man's house. Uh, and so he's still in Jericho in verse 28 of chapter 19. We look at, and, and I'm not going to go there yet, but, but just it says that when he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
the way that you can interpret that is that when he said, when he had said this in verse 28, it links the triumphal entry to the parable of the stewards and the 10 minas that we see in chapter 19 in verses 11 through 27. So bear with me on that. He intends this parable that he's about to, to give these guys uh, to introduce and to explain his triumphal entry and his entry into the city. That's the purpose of this parable. He also intends to illustrate his foreknowledge of the people's ultimate response to their king. So Luke 19, verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, what things? Well, in verse 10, he says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So Luke tells us the purpose of this parable. Now, a parable, if, if you remember, if you're a student of the Bible, you probably are aware, but uh, a parable, the, the word literally means to lay down alongside of. And it's making a, a comparison. It's taking a, an a earthly truth or a physical truth or a tangible truth, and he tells a story with this thing, but it's to illustrate things going on in the spiritual realm. So the, the two purposes that parables have is, number one, they reveal truth to the hearer. Number two, they conceal truth to the hearer. Because if it's not united with faith, what, when, whenever Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and he says that a lot in the Gospels, what he's saying is this is something that is spiritually discerned. He's not talking about ears. He's talking about ears. He's talking, when he says eyes to see, it's talking about the eyes of our hearts. He's talking about the ears of our hearts, the things that we can hear spiritually because we are open to the things of God. So he's going to tell this parable and he's revealing truth to his disciples. The people that didn't walk with him, the people that were there that didn't know him, uh, it would probably go right over their heads. So as he's going to be telling this, he, again, Passover's at hand. He's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. Josephus, uh, the, the Jewish historian, secular historian, tells us that at this time of year that there were about two million pilgrims that would pour into Jerusalem. So the city would swell. There would be tents littering the hillsides surrounding the city that uh, Jesus was fortunate, he and his guys, because his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where he's going to head, uh, had a house about two miles away on the other side of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. But this would have been a huge deal. There was a great messianic expectation among the people. Uh, it would strengthen the idea that in their minds that the kingdom of God was going to appear right away, that he was coming to bring in and to set up his kingdom. Verse 12, therefore he said, and this is the parable, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. <clears throat> the nobleman here is Jesus himself, who would leave this world and then return. At that time, he would set up his kingdom. <laughs> he's telling them he's not going to set up his kingdom now, but when he returns. So follow along with that. These things make total sense as you understand the truth that he's revealing. Verse 13, so he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business until I come. So he's talking about between the time that he takes the kingdom 
that he receives a kingdom in the time he comes back. The ten minas, one, a, a mina was about three months' wage. This is a lot of money. So the servants here in this parable, they represent followers of Jesus and his giving them, giving us a valuable commission. He has entrusted us with this commission. And, and that's what's represented in the, in the minas and in, in the money that he's talking about. And, and what he's doing is requiring faithfulness until he comes. So in verse 14, but his citizens hated him. Now he's talking about citizens. This is not the servants. This is the citizens of the country, that the kingdom that he's, that he's acquiring. The citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. The hateful citizens are not the servants, but the enemies who rejected the king in the parable are representative of the Jewish nation that rejected Christ then and those who are in a Christ-rejecting world that we're a part of now. There's a dual application here. Verse 15, he says, And so it was that when he returned, this is the nobleman, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might know, he might know how every man had gained, how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina, understand he says, your mina earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina, again, attributing it, it's, it, it was your money, has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Jesus here is giving a window into the future, out to the end of the age, when the king has returned, when he does set up his kingdom. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, we read, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is a reference to the millennial reign of Christ. He's outlining to them, look, I'm, I'm not going to take and set up my kingdom now, folks, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to receive the kingdom and we'll get to that, but then I'll come back. I'm going to leave and then I'll come back. He's talking about the second coming when he will. He's saying it's just not yet. And, and so, uh, and, and he's letting these people know that there will be rewards for the way that they invested in the kingdom, the king's stuff. That's you and I. We've been talking in the book of Romans about, we last uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, the Bema seat and the judgment for believers. We looked at the great white throne, which is the ultimate judgment for unbelievers. But the Bema judgment, where we receive rewards, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, a couple of things to note, he credits each each of these guys credit their master saying it was his mina that had done the earning. They didn't say, look at me, look at my stuff, look, look what I did. They said, look at that which you entrusted to me. There was a return. Notice also that their compensation is in keeping with their individual returns. Uh, we've talked about that too. Don't need to go into that again. We looked at the fact that salvation is by grace. It's utterly by grace. Unmerited favor. You simply trust Christ for your sins. They're gone. And you belong to him. Judgment. 
rewards on the basis of what we do. Verse 20, then another came saying, Master, here's your mind out, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere, and that means hard. You're a hard man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, uh, I might have collected it with interest? Now, interesting, what Jesus says here, he says, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. And now he's talking about one of the servants. He's not talking about one of the citizens here. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus teaching there in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What he's saying here is, you see me as harsh, then I will repay you harshly. Uh, I think about that. I think about people that paint pictures of God. Unbelievers, generally, they're looking for reasons not to believe. Uh, the, the, the old line about, well, what about all the starving children in Africa? You're saying that, essentially, you're saying, well, I, I'm not going to believe in God because there are people that are... No, you're seeing him as harsh. And essentially, what's behind that is finding reasons to not come to faith, finding reasons to stay, essentially, in your sin. And those kind of arguments are fruitless, and they really illustrate the condition of one's heart. It also under, this, this part of the parable helps us to understand Jesus' emphasis in the parable. It wasn't to make money by his servants. What he was about was building godly character in his servants. It wasn't for the benefit of the master, but for the blessing of his servants. That's the point. The third servant missed the point entirely. He wasn't killed, but he did suffer loss. And that's consistent, consistent with the New Testament narratives that talk about us, talk about believers, that we will suffer loss if we're not investing for the kingdom. It doesn't mean that we're losing our soul, but what it does mean is that we're not as useful to him as we ought to or could be. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that everyone who has will, uh, everyone who has will be given. Uh, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So again, he's talking about measuring out rewards to the people of God. That's part of his point. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about, I'm not setting it up now. I'm going to set it up later. And there's a trust. There's a sacred trust, a stewardship that is being given to you now in the in-between time. That's what he's illustrating here in this parable. He says uh, in verse 27, bring here those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them and slay them before me. A reference to judgment. Just to recap, five parallels between this parable and the triumphal entry where Messiah would present himself to Israel. The first is Jesus tells this parable for two reasons. First, he's near Jerusalem at the fulfillment of all he had been telling his people, his disciples, the things that he'd been revealing about uh, his future and what was going to happen. He had told them plainly, I will be killed. 
I am going to Jerusalem. He had told them over and over and over again, seven times from chapter 9 to chapter 19. He brings it up. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that people thought that the kingdom of God was going to be set up imminently at that point. And he's dispelling that error with them and letting them know there is a kingdom and there is things, there are things for you to do, but that's in the in-between time between the time I receive my kingdom and the time I come and I physically set it up. The second thing that we see here is a nobleman goes to a distant, distant country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This is a reference, the first to receive a kingdom. It's a reference to his first coming to his first advent. When he says, and to return, it's a reference to the second coming, to return and to set up that kingdom. The third thing we see here is the nobleman gives 10 minus to 10 slaves, one minus each for which he holds them accountable. This is a sacred stewardship. Very much like what Jesus told his men there again, back in Matthew 16, at the turning point in his ministry, when he said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That which you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and that which you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What he was doing was giving them a, a sacred stewardship. That's what the landowner did when he was going away. Again, that whole part of what he's telling those men was, I'm going away. I will come back. But when I'm gone, you have a stewardship. You have the keys to my house. You can transact business in my place. It's very clearly what he's doing here in this parable. It's very clearly what he spoke to his men in Matthew 16. And it's mentioned in the other gospels as well. We have a stewardship. It's a sacred stewardship that we steward the things of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the in-between. The fourth thing that we look at here as we recap, the citizens hate the nobleman and don't want him ruling over them. Again, that refers to people who would reject Jesus then, and he knew they were going to reject him, and those who reject him now, because we're still in between that first and second advent coming. The fifth thing we see is at the end, the nobleman says, bring those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them here and kill them before me. Serious stuff, folks. We've been looking in Romans at the wrath of God. We've been looking at the judgment of God. And we'll see God's heart in this as we get further along in the story here. Suffice it to say that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, uh, sobering. We were looking at our men's group a couple of Tuesday nights ago at Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, where it, it says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And that's where as... Jesus peels back the seals from the scroll and the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth as he begins now to purge the earth from sin. There's silence in heaven. God must judge. It's not his first option. He gives us the choice. So instead, he would be entering Jerusalem at this point. He's not coming to judge. He's coming to save. He's coming as the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah 53. So he's, instead of, of coming to judge, he's entering Jerusalem on a donkey. That was the royal mount of a, a king that was coming in peace. 
He's coming to establish his kingdom, his invisible kingdom. Literally, it's his spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority through trusting him through the finished work of the cross for their sins. In all of this, Jesus is preparing for his departure where he will at the appointed time return. This time in power, riding a horse, the royal mount of a king coming to make war at his second coming. At that time, he will set up a physical kingdom on the earth and rule personally from Jerusalem for a thousand years. We call it the millennial reign of Christ. And he's referencing that in this parable. After telling the parable, then he made his way up to Bethany, and that's the place where he had raised Lazarus recently from the dead. We see that in John chapter, uh, what is it, 11. Uh, and then in chapter 12, these things are, are going as we sort of mesh the Gospels. So when we look at the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 12, it tells us that a crowd followed him up. They came to see him. They also wanted to see Lazarus, this guy that they'd heard was dead. And now they that he's like alive. And they get there and they're all sitting at the table. And there's Lazarus carrying on. And it would have just been a mind blower for these people. They knew. It was attested. There was a big crowd there at the tomb when Lazarus was raised. It was no small miracle. At the same time, the religious leaders had become openly hostile towards Jesus In John chapter 11, after he had raised Lazarus, they were plotting to kill him. They also said they wanted to kill Lazarus. They didn't want this guy around, you know, every time. Can you imagine Lazarus? Every time you talk to him, I'm the guy that he, you know, yeah. (laughs) They didn't want that kind of advertising going on. In John 11, 56 and 57, we read this. It says, then they sought Jesus and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? that he will not come to the feast. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that he should report it, that they might seize him. So essentially, to be clear, they wanted him dead. Jesus would have been the topic of discussion with these people, with the crowd that's following him, with the crowd that's in the city, with the religious leaders. I mean, As I mentioned, the city would have swelled to a couple of million people. I mean, there would be huge crowds around, and and it's just buzzing uh, with anticipation because they had been looking for Messiah, and they thought they well they thought they understood Jesus to be Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah that they expected. The leaders and the people were asking, "Is he coming? Have you seen him?" Uh, Great. Great stuff here. It says in verse 29, And it came to pass that when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Bethphage. People put it different places. It's near Bethany. We don't know exactly where. The, the, it's hard to determine. But Bethany is a known place. And as I mentioned, it's about uh, two miles over the Mount of Olives. So if you look, here's the city of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is right here. And there's the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Ravine. Just immediately on the side of the ravine uh, is the Mount of Olives. Just up from the ravine is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, then going up over the mountain 
Bethany was on the back side. And so that's where Jesus headed when he went. He went to Bethany and he was going to stay with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And coming into town, he, he gets a couple of his guys. We don't know who they were, but he, he sends them into the village to find a specific animal. Uh, now, later on, Jesus would send Peter and John to get the preparations for the Passover meal. It might have been them. It was somebody, it was a couple of guys that he trusted. We don't know. But the point in this is, can you imagine how this would have challenged these guys? Uh, he'd like stealing a car. You know, hey, I want you to leave church here and I want you to go over onto, you know, <laughs> Highway 99 and you'll see a green Ford with a license number, da, da, da. Get in it, you'll see the keys and just start it and bring it here. <laughs> it, it's just, it's remarkable. Verse 31, and if anyone asks you, why are you losing it? You'll say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And I, now I, in my own thinking, I'd be thinking, oh, that's going to work. <laughs> the Lord needs it. Uh, but you know, I, I heard a story this week. I shared it with the guys on Tuesday night. Uh, we've had, uh, with Stacy's father's health being in decline, we've had a lot of visitors coming through all week. And, and cousin Kathy and her husband came down from Washington and she was telling a story about her son, Philip. Now, Philip is a grown man, but he came down with just this awful disease. I mean, uh, his symptoms were severe and nobody could figure it out. I mean, nobody. And, and you know, she worked at the Baptist church over in Oregon City at the time. She wasn't making, you know, tons of money. And, and so God kept opening these doors. I mean, a door opened for them to fly him to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And, and, and all paid for. <laughs> and then doors opened at the Mayo Clinic and all. And she said, we had to go get this really expensive test one day. <laughs> and, and they had me come up. They said, you know, you need, we need to talk to you, the, the finance office people. And she said, she was telling us, I knew that they were going to get to the money thing at some point. And so, I turned in my paperwork and they said, well, you don't make very much. And she said, well, it is what it is. And they said, well, he's got to have this test, but they're going to ask you for the financial aspect when you get upstairs to get this thing done. And they said, tell them when you get, when they start asking you, just tell them, I want to apply for the scholarship. <laughs> and she said, what? They said, don't say anything more. All, you don't have to know anything else. Just say, I want to apply for the scholarship. So she went upstairs and sure enough, they you know, were getting him set up for this test. And and the lady said, well, you know, we need to get, I think it was like $15,000 that you have on the books right now and da, da, da. And she said, I just looked at her and I said, I want to apply for the scholarship. And she said, the, the lady got mad. She got angry. She said, it doesn't work that way. It's not that simple. And she just started to go off. And, and Kathy said, I was just told to say that. I want to apply for the scholarship. And she went, oh, hold on. And she went in the back and she came back out. And then she was a little angrier because now she had paperwork. She got $100,000 towards her son's care in the scholarship. And I, I, was, I, I told them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm teaching in the, this whole deal where you know, Jesus tells these guys, let's go see the Lord has need of it. You don't have to know why. You don't have to know. And they didn't. 
They didn't have to know anything else. She didn't have to know anything else. Just say what I'm telling you to say and see how it works out. So uh, in verse 32, he says, so they, uh, those who were sent went their way and they found it just as he had said to them. So this tells me one of a couple of things. Either the owners of the cult were Jesus' disciples and he had set this up ahead of time. But remember, he's just come into town. Uh, or this was a supernatural preparation for Jesus' entry into the city. I particularly choose that one because it, it, it's just like him to do that. Uh, and so it says in verse 33, is that they were loosing the cult. The owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the cult? <laughs> and they said, the Lord has need of him. So these guys are untying this animal. I would imagine they're looking around kind of nervously like, um, is anybody coming? <laughs> and this guy walks up, says, hey, what are you doing with my animal? What are you doing untying that thing? <laughs> and they tell him that Jesus said you know, what he said. And, and evidently the guy's good. It doesn't say anything about his response. It's just, it's like, okay, either way. Uh, choose which one you like. Uh, we see a demonstration of Jesus's authority and power in this. Verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. All right, now I want you to get the picture here. I have one word to describe this scene. Awkward. <laughs> have you ever tried to get on a bicycle that was too small? I, I... Uh, somebody gave us some bicycles and we had this little, it was a girl's stingray bike about that high. And, and as you know, I'm about that high. <laughs> and I got on the, I pumped up the tires and I tried to ride it around in the dirt lot behind our house at one point and I about killed myself. And my legs are sticking out from the handlebars and, and you know, and I'm, I just, yeah, I look like a gorilla riding this thing. Well, the point in this is this is a colt. This is the foal of a donkey. Jesus, we have to assume he's an average sized guy, even if he's a little smaller being a Jew. And this thing would be small. They put him on it. They put their clothes on it and they set him on it. There's little doubt that he would have had to have his legs raised off the ground on purpose just to ride the thing into town. So why the colt? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling in this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, the baby. Essentially, I mean, all laughter aside, at, at how this would be, because it would be awkward. This is the moment that Jesus had re- repeatedly spoken of. This is the moment of his unveiling to the nation. Notice in Zechariah, he says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, that's the city. He's presenting himself to both here. In Matthew sixteen twenty. Again, he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. This is the Messiah. He's presenting himself to Israel. If they had been paying attention, they would have seen, and I'm not going to go into it. There's no time. 
They would have been looking from Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel outlines 69 units of seven years from the time of the decree to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem till this day. It came down to the day. The mathematics are there in God's word. And if you use a Jewish calendar, 360 days, it fits exactly and it traces to this day. Says in verse 36, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Remember, huge crowds. The other three gospels tell us that the people took tree branches. John specifically mentions palm branches. That's where we get the term Palm Sunday. And they laid him out on the road ahead of him. This would be the same as in our culture when we roll out the red carpet. Okay? So they're honoring him in this, and they're crying out, Hosanna. Again, it doesn't say here in Luke, but it does tell us in, the, in all three Gospels, uh, of the other Gospels, that, that they're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. That's significant. They're recognizing him as Messiah. But even in the translation of the word Hosanna, it translates, save now. They wanted him to come in and set up his kingdom now, to throw off the yoke of Rome now. And that wasn't what he was doing. Verse 37, and then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they had seen a bunch. So get the picture here. Bethany is on the backside, as I mentioned, of the Mount of Olives. So he's getting up to the crest of the hill. And the crowd coming out of the city, the crowd coming down with him, they converge and they just begin to, to worship. They begin to praise. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Interesting, they're quoting Psalm 118.26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. But Luke changes the word he to the king. Why? Because the people, this was a salutation. If you were going to one of the national feasts in Israel, that was how you saluted people. That was how you welcomed, you greeted people by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because the pilgrims that were coming into the city. But Jesus is more than a pilgrim. He's a king. And although it would be short-lived, these people are worshiping their king. Again, what a scene. I picture just dust in the air and the, you know, this, the noise that's going on. Uh, powerful, powerful scene here as these people all come together and, and their focus is completely on Jesus. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The crowd's praise made Jesus' enemies great against him. They did not like him. They wanted, as I mentioned, they wanted him dead and they would get their way eventually. But this day, uh, they angrily objected to the praise that was being offered. It caused them to face the fact that they were being defeated. And up until they put him on the cross, they were defeated. The people had gone away from them. When Jesus would teach, he would teach in the porticos of the, the court of the Gentile, court of the Gentiles up on the temple mount. And that's where the, the rabbis would customarily go and teach and, and the people would come and they would gather. And so it would be like this Jewish leader here and this Jewish leader here. There might be four or five people. And then here's Jesus teaching and there's 300. I mean, it was just 
that was the impact. That was the effect that he had. He was drawing the crowds away from them. And their devotion to Judaism as they had portrayed it, which was a total misportraying of what God intended. John twelve nineteen says of this scene that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You cannot restrain this. If you, if these become quiet, creation itself is going to cry out because this is the moment. This is the point. This is the day that Messiah would be revealed. It's such a powerful moment. Jesus wouldn't restrain the praise that had spontaneously erupted from the crowds. And the stones would stay silent on that day because the multitude was giving Jesus, their coming king, the praise that he was due. Verse 40, 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. So now as he's riding over the brow of the hill, uh, and I've done this when, when I've been to Israel uh, had opportunity to come over the brow of the hill. What he's talking about here, uh, it, it is a phenomenal view. You come over and you're, you're going up, up, up. And, and the Mount of Olives is really, it's kind of a tall hill. It's not really, it's not like a big craggy mountain. You come up and you come over the hill and just as you round it, the whole city is right there. You look down and as I said, the Mount of Olives, it slopes down kind of gently. It's right today. It's, it's the biggest graveyard in Israel. There are burial crypts, thousands that litter the whole mountain. Uh, at any rate, it goes all the way down and then you, there's a ravine, just a, there's a crease in, in between the hills. And that's the Kidron Ravine. It's the Kidron Valley. And then just up from the Kidron Valley is the Temple Mount. And it's right there. Uh, and of course, now the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine is prominent in that. But in those days, when they came over the hill, Jesus would have seen the city stretching out in the background. And he'd see the Temple Mount in the foreground and the, the temple itself, majestic, majestic building. Uh, and, and he comes over and it says that uh, as he drew near, he saw the city. And he began to weep over it. I want to talk about that for a minute. His tears were not for himself. It wasn't, oh, this is so hard. Look at what I'm about to do. And he wasn't softly weeping. His tears were for them. His tears were for the coming judgment that would come upon this people, this city, this nation. The Greek word for weeping here, it, it, it it literally means, here's a definition, to weep or to wail with an emphasis upon the noise accompanying the weeping. So what is being said here, when Jesus weeps over the city, this is a loud, it's a visceral, it's from his gut, uh, an outburst of emotion. He is sobbing as he comes over and he looks at the city and he knows that they're going to reject he knows that they want him to set up his kingdom now. And that's not what he's there for. He knows that this is Sunday and by Friday, things would look completely different. And he begins to weep because he knows that in rejecting him, there's nothing left but judgment. Verse 42 saying, no doubt through tears, 
I, I, I just picture the scene, gang, and, and think of him saying these things and now choking as he talks, as he tries to speak, as he's so emotional at this point. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Anguish in his voice as he speaks this. I believe that Jesus' tears were born of a frustrated desire. He'd come to Jerusalem in a broader sense to Israel with the desire to deliver them from destruction. And he came to offer the things of peace, true peace. Instead, he found those whom he had spoken of in the parable of the minas or the stewards who were rejecting his rightful kingly reign over them. That's why he told the parable. The spiritual blindness of the rulers and the people was such that, that they didn't discern. They, they were unable to discern the meaning of his visitation. They were unable to discern the full impact of what this day truly meant. They had their ideas, as I mentioned. The result was inevitable. There would be no escape from the judgment and destruction to come. I've been thinking about this, guys. I don't know about you, but I think I mentioned not long ago that there are times where I have to just turn off the news or I have to just close my web browser because the news that's out there is there's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of there's a lot of sinning going on out there. There's a lot of people who are enemies of the cross. And God checked my heart as I was preparing for this morning. What is Jesus's attitude? This is towards the people that are trying to kill him. He weeps over them. He weeps over their condition. He weeps over the fact that he knows that they're rejecting. He knows that that in rejecting, they're inviting judgment. May God keep us from having a hateful heart towards a sinful world. It's easy to slip into that. If there's any message that I could ask you and and, and just beseech you to apply to your life today is look out, like have the mind of Christ. Look out as though he's looking out over the city and be burdened for the people who are so deceived, who are so caught up in the snare of sin and death that they can't see. I don't want to have a hateful heart. Sometimes I start slipping into it. There's a lot of hatred going on out there. Let it not be named among us. Verse 43. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Some of the most powerful words in all of God's word. This would come about. As we know that from this point that Jesus would go through the week and by Friday he would be on the cross. In the future, in the year 66, there was a guy by the name of Florus. Uh, he was the last Roman procurator. That's what Pilate was. He was a procurator. Uh, and, and he was in Jerusalem and, and what he did against the Jews is the Jews had a treasury in the temple and he robbed the treasury. He stole vast quantities of silver from the temple. The Jews were rightfully outraged and then they rioted. They wiped out. There was a small Roman garrison in the city at that time. They wiped it out. 
And that set off a chain of events resulting in a four-year Roman military siege against the city. That It didn't stop there. Meanwhile, inside the city, the Jews were engaged in a suicidal civil war. A region example here. In expectation of the Roman siege, Jerusalem's Jews had had stockpiled a supply of dry food that could have fed the city for many years. Yet one of the warring zealot factions burned the entire supply, wanting to get the Jews desperate enough to fight. The starvation resulting from this insane act caused suffering as great as any that the Romans inflicted. So people were dying within the city. The Romans were encamped about the city. And during the the summer of the year 70, the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem. That initiated an onslaught of violence and destruction in the city as well as the temple. Those who they didn't kill on the spot, they took out. Crosses would have been all around the city. They crucified. Those that they didn't crucify, they packed off to be slaves in the empire. It's estimated that in the Jewish revolt between 66 and 70, that about a million Jews died as a result. As we look at the week ahead, we call this Passion Week or Holy Week. Those are names that the church has given it. And I think it's cool, but I also think that we should kind of maintain our passion all year. It's kind of like on Mother's Day, you know, we honor mom. And I don't have any problem with that, but uh, I told my mom once, I want to honor you all year. I mean, that's, I love you. I, I'm not, I'm not going to just set aside a day. But, but truly, as we look at and as we think about and we ponder the things of the kingdom of God in this coming week, setting up for when we remember the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord, I want to invite you, consider where you're at with the Lord. Where do you fit in the parable of the minus? You've been given a divine stewardship. We have. Are we investing our lives for the kingdom of God? Are we investing our lives for our king? Probing questions. As we look at Passion Week here on Sunday, the people were remembering Zechariah 9.9 as they praised their Messiah King. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Throughout the next four days, Jesus would teach daily in the temple over on the Mount of Olives, as well as square off against the religious leaders. By Friday morning, the crowd would be at the praetorium. Many of the people in the same crowd that are praising, screaming Hosanna, celebrating Jesus coming into the city would be among those who are screaming, crucify him. Jesus had been beaten, scourged, spat upon, hit with people's fists, then marched back out in front of Pilate uh, at the praetorium as he... Pilate was trying to wash his hands of him and trying to let him off, but the Jews pressed and the crowd pressed. And Pilate's words were, Behold your king. Then he ordered Jesus to be crucified. May we, as those who are entrusted with the sacred stewardship spoken of in this parable, seek to invest in the lives of those around us. Folks, time is short. I was mentioning to the guys on Tuesday night, I have rephrased the last days. I believe we're in the last of the last days. 
things have changed, shifted so radically. And, and the signs of the times are there. The birth pangs are there. And they're getting more frequent. They're getting more intense. Let's invest our lives. Loving one another. Loving those who are lost. Loving them enough to risk. Can I tell you about Jesus? I know you don't want to hear it, but I don't want to see the options. Those are the things that we're called to in these days. Let us be used to bring them into fellowship with God. The the God who loves each one so much that he gave his son for each for their salvation. Powerful stuff as we look at the week ahead. Next week, as I mentioned, we're going to go into looking at the seven things that Jesus spoke from the cross because it's very significant. The composite of those seven things gives a very clear message as to what uh, our interaction with him is and ought to be and what his, his interaction with a, a, a dying world is as well. Just speaking to anybody, to those of you that may be watching this online or podcast, if you don't know Jesus this morning, don't end up on the wrong side. I want to encourage you, the temptation may be to reject. We saw in the parable and we saw as Jesus pronounced judgment on the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, the effects of turning away from him. If you've never embraced Jesus for the first time, Simple transaction. He says, we're told that the just shall live by faith. To simply believe that he died for your sins, that he went to that cross for you. To pray a prayer, something like, God, I've lived away from you, and yet you're opening my heart. I acknowledge that. And by faith, I come to you. I ask you to forgive me for my sins, to cleanse me. And I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, he will do it. And he will give you a new life. He'll give you new purpose. He'll give you understanding that you never had, that you can't have, short of belonging to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this brief look at the triumphal entry and and all of the things that were going on uh, in in Jesus' own heart as he uh, laments these people and their rejection. In the people's hearts as they are uh, stretching and, and essentially having false hope in what they thought Jesus would be. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us as a community and as a nation that we would be mindful of the things of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be those stewards that reach out, that invest in your kingdom, invest in those around us, giving the love of Christ where love is in such short supply. We just commit ourselves afresh to your purposes in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would work in us and through us in the week ahead. We love you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.